Hello everybody, my name is Eric Mercier. I am co-owner of Juice Imports and today I'm gonna to walk you through the premium edition of our Natural Wine Club. Uh, this month we're getting back to basics with a little discussion about Rhone grape varieties. So grape varieties from the Rhone Valley in France. Um, this area I was fortunate enough to visit earlier this year uh, and essentially hiked from uh, Cote Roti, so to I guess the most northern extreme of the Rhone Valley, all the way down to uh, Hermitage and Cornas, which are sort of on the southern end of what we classically considered the northern Rhone Valley. Um, this area continues much further south into places like Gigonda and Chardonnay-Zupap, and for Rosé Tabel. Um, really, really dyna dynamic area, and an area that I have been obsessed with as long as I've been into wine. Uh, it's no real secret that you know, probably my favorite grape variety of all time is Syrah. Um, I just think that it is so expressive and so dynamic and, you know, has this huge spectrum of flavors, whether that be Shiraz style Syrah coming from places like Australia, where you get this really jammy kind of decadent quality, lots of cocoa, um, you know, holds up to new oak quite well compared to other grape varieties. Uh, and on the other end of that spectrum, you have examples like, you know, coming from Martin Texier, um, where these wines are are light and ethereal and peppery and floral and you know imminently drinkable you can crush a bottle of it with uh without too much thought um and so the fact that it you know that Syrah can span this huge spectrum is really really amazing to me and the northern rhone is, is the home of Syrah um further south in those areas that i was talking about uh afterwards Grenache uh Mouvedre, Carignan, you start seeing these grape varieties, Cinso in certain places, um, and these are the red grape varieties that you see. And although Grenache is not uh, technically from the Rhone Valley, in fact, it's most likely from northern Spain, um, it's certainly found a home in these areas. We always talk about the GSM blends, the Grenache Syrah Mouvedre blends. Um, and these sort of, you know, historically have come from these places like the Côte du Rhône, um, so that southern part of the, of the Rhône. Um, and again, I'm just absolutely obsessed with this style. Uh, from a white perspective, there are quite a few white grape varieties here, and I think people are maybe a little less familiar with them than than maybe they should be. Uh, so it's everything from uh, Grenache Blanc, uh, Marsan, Roussan, Viognier, um, further south, you have great varieties like Pickpool and Claret that I'm a huge fan of as well. Um, and then, you know, even more kind of obscure indigenous grape varieties finding their way into the blend. Um, these white grape varieties, as a general statement, tend to make usually fuller bodied wines that are a little bit richer, a little bit more intense. Um, you know, good alternative to something like Chardonnay, for instance. Uh, so if you like the style of Chardonnay, a little bit more weight, I think uh, Southern Rhone whites are a really great option. Or Northern Rhone whites, if you like something with a little bit more structure as well, too. Um, I find that Northern Rhone whites can almost have a tannic quality to them. Uh, a little bit of grip. So if you're a red wine drinker who, you know, needs to drink a little bit of white wine every once in a while, it, you know, the Northern Rhone is a really great option for you. Um, so our two wines, uh, our two reds that we're going to taste side by side this month. Um, the first is from Testalonga and the second is from Ursa Major, uh, a producer that we've had highly requested to make its way into the wine club. So we'll start with Testalonga. Um, this wine is called The Dark Side and 
it'd be pretty hard for me to say that this isn't my favorite wine from Testalonga. Um, again, when it comes to the more delicate side of Syrah, uh, I think the dark side is, is really as good as it gets. Um, as far as Craig Hawkins, the winemaker goes, uh, for him, this is sort of the darkest wine that he makes. Uh, it depends on the vintage. Um, you know, in some cases it can be as low as, you know, 11 and a half percent alcohol and as high as, I think I've seen it somewhere up around 13% alcohol. Um, this wine's going to fall somewhere sort of in between those two percentages. Um, it's not, you know, extraordinarily full-bodied, but it's definitely got tons of intensity to it and usually has this really vivid purple color. Um, this is a wine where, you know, over the course of the year, I'm, I'm probably drinking more of it than anybody else in the province combined. Uh, we really only get somewhere between you know, 24 and 36 bottles, depending on the vintage, sometimes even less than that. In our first vintage, we, we didn't receive any. Uh, and so for us to actually get an allocation seems quite special. Um, I think he only made, you know, usually makes two barrels of this wine, essentially. So, uh, you know, somewhere between 100 and 150 cases. Uh, and normally, you know, he basically just chooses the best barrels and bottles that, uh, Usually he makes, you know, a handful of barrels, three or four barrels, and then essentially just the, the most ideal ones actually end up in the wine. Um, so we, we feel very lucky that we get it. This is coming from the Swartland. The Swartland is located in South Africa. We've talked about it quite a bit on the show, so I won't get too deep into detail here. Um, but this is coming from a site planted in the early 2000s, so roughly 20 years ago. Um, it's less than a hectare, so really, really small vineyards. There's not a lot of fruit to go around and tends to yield quite low. Um, because they're they're trying as much as they can to practice dry farming. So um, farming without irrigation in places like South Africa that are really prone to drought, having sites where you can actually uh, dry farm is really important. Um, the soils here are mostly going to be decomposed granite, which you'll see across the region. Uh, granite here decomposes to sand, essentially. So it's this really sort of unstable, um, you know, sandy, sort of rocky quality. Um, but this particular location actually has a little bit of clay as well. And clay is really great um, for helping retain a little bit of uh, moisture, especially, again, in areas where you're trying to do dry farming. Um, and it also provides a little bit of extra nutrients. So in places like this that struggle with organic matter, uh, it helps limit your reliance on things like compost and on um, you know, additions to the soil in order to get the soil health, you know, amped up essentially. Um, so yeah, really ideal place to be, to be growing Syrah. Um, the Swartland is quite renowned for Syrah and, uh, Rhone grape varieties in general. If you look at, you know, especially the Southern Rhone, there's a lot of crossover between this area of South Africa where you do have essentially a Mediterranean climate uh, in places like the Rhone Valley. Even if you think about the plants that are growing in this area, things like finbos, things like these wild herbs, kind of eucalyptus-y, um, it's very similar to what you would see growing throughout the Southern Rhone, which we often refer to as garig, um, which can be a combination of things like, you know, lavender, things like um, sage, things like uh, rosemary. And so it's this wild blend of, of herbs that are just sort of growing everywhere. Uh, I find that there's a lot of crossover in the aromatic qualities that you're getting from these things. I think a lot of people don't put enough emphasis on the fact that um, 
flavors from the surrounding area are going to inevitably make it into the wine. Uh, we, you know, you see this a lot in places like Australia, where the Syrah tends to be quite minty from the eucalyptus leaves. Uh, and then in places like Chile, where they are in close proximity to um, essentially bay leaves. And so these bay leaves often impart this really interesting savory quality to it. Uh, again, literally smelling like bay leaves or, or green pepper or, um, you know, dried jalapenos, things like that, where there's this sort of savory green quality to it. And in this case, again, I think a lot of the flavor profile of this wine is actually being picked up from the surrounding areas as well, which is just an additional layer of terroir, uh, an additional layer of somewhereness making its way into this wine, which is the whole reason we drink wine anyways. Um, Syrah, as a grape variety goes, tends to be uh, quite thick-skinned, so it's not super susceptible to things like rot, depending on the climate that is. Um, And the grapes tend to be almost this olive shape, which is quite unique. I haven't really seen that in too many different grape varieties, but it makes them quite easy to identify. Um, It's a grape variety that, again, I'm absolutely obsessed with, especially for its Uh, inclusion of a molecule called rotundin. Rotundin is what makes black pepper smell like black pepper. And so there tends to be a peppery quality to most Syrah. uh, And I just love that peppery quality. I think it makes it incredibly food friendly, um, especially with pairing with things like cured meats um, and especially savory dishes, things like lamb. uh, Absolute amazing combination. So uh, really cool that we got to include this wine in the wine club. Um, with us getting such a limited amount of Testalonga every year, uh, I try and get as much of it into the wine club as possible, um, just so that, you know, so nobody misses out, essentially. Uh, I feel like I'm missing out when I don't get to taste them. Uh, Our next wine today is coming from Ursa Major. So this is made by our friend Rajan. Uh, He is in the Okanagan, and in particular in the southern part of the Okanagan, which is quite different from the northern Okanagan. Um, The north is quite cool. Um, You have a lot of influence from, um, again, like basically this northern sort of desert climate um, versus further south. Uh, you're getting a lot of influence in the desert, but you're also getting a lot of influence from uh, heat sort of being locked in by these major lakes. Um, the climate is just quite different. Even when you drive from Kelowna down to a Soyuz, you'll notice a few temperature or a few degrees um, warmer as you head further south. So even though it's not like you're heading you know, thousands of kilometers or anything like that, the climate is, is extraordinarily different from north to south. Um, that's the joys of being so far north is that any minute change can really, really affect these, um, you know, mesoclimates, not quite macroclimates, not quite microclimates, but uh, mesoclimates from region to region, essentially. Um, In this particular area, uh, down south, um, you're planting on a lot of uh, sand, essentially. Most of the Okanagan is filled with some sort of sand, whether that be uh, you know, broken down from granite, whether that be sort of more of a silty quality coming from glacial erosion. Um, but the soils here tend to be, you know, quite broken down. So in this case, we have sandy loam. Sandy loam is a really easy soil to grow on. It drains really well. Uh, vines don't like getting their roots wet. 
Um, but in a place like the Okanagan that, as mentioned, is essentially a desert, uh, it's not the ideal situation necessarily to uh, to be draining that much. Um, so in this area, you're going to be using irrigation. Um, there are a handful of places in the Okanagan where people are practicing dry farming, but it's extraordinarily rare. Uh, essentially, most of the Okanagan is is plus or minus a little bit. Um, So it's, uh, again, it's astonishing that we can grow grapes this far north realistically. So it's, it's, you know, we got to do everything we can to, to make it work. Um, This is coming from the Black Sage Bench. So uh, a subregion of the Southern part of the Okanagan that is um, particularly famous for red wines, in my opinion. Uh, Things like Cabernet Franc, I think do extraordinarily well here. Uh, you're starting to see more Gamay Noir planted in this area, um, and then definitely Syrah for me. Uh, I think Syrah from this area makes a ton of sense. Again, quite hot. Syrah, unlike a lot of grape varieties, can actually withstand quite a bit of heat. Um, the Rhone grape varieties in general tend to be quite heat tolerant, especially grape varieties like Grenache that are often grown in uh, the warmer parts of Spain, for instance, or even in places like uh, the warmer parts of Australia. Um, unlike most grape varieties that the vines will actually uh, shut down at high temperatures, usually Syrah and Grenache. And again, it really depends on the temperature. Uh, You know, if you're creeping up too high above 30, yeah, they're going to start shutting down. But as a general statement, compared to something like Pinot Noir, they tend to do quite well in that heat. It takes longer for them to ripen as well. And so you need to have them planted in quite warm areas where you know, it's not getting too cool in the fall or else you'll never really achieve ripeness. Um, at the moment in the Okanagan, they're going through a really interesting season. It's been quite cool in general. So they're honestly, you know, three weeks behind uh, what you'd see in California. So I'm recording this at the end of August uh, because I'm actually leaving for har- harvest in Germany in less than 24 hours, which gives me massive butterflies in my chest. Uh, quite nervous about it, but quite excited. Um, but, you know, they haven't even started harvesting in uh, in the Okanagan yet versus in California. A lot of the producers that we're working with are going to be done, you know, sort of first week of September, maybe second week of September. And, and that's sort of looking like when people are going to start harvesting in the Okanagan. So even though you know, for anybody who's ever visited the Okanagan, you'll, you'll, at least during the summer, you'll feel like it's climatically quite similar to California. But because our season starts so much later because of the cool springs, um, we end up having this really late season. And, and this year in particular, a very late season. Um, so it's, it's exciting to see what ends up happening. Um, this particular wine is made from, uh, again, majority Syrah, so 85% Syrah, but it's co-fermented with Viognier. This is a really traditional technique. You see this done in, um, in particular in Cote Roti, where it, it's absolutely tradition. Um, there's a handful of ideas behind this. Uh, Viognier tends to ripen a little bit earlier than Syrah does, and so it actually tends to add body as opposed to making the wine lighter. Um, it also tends to have a little bit lower acidity than Syrah. Again, I've often seen books quote this 
incorrectly. Um, but yeah, it tends to have, uh, you know, a little bit more weight to it, a little bit more viscosity. And so in cooler climates, adding Viognier de Syrah actually increases its body and helps its mouthfeel, makes it feel a little bit more, you know, rich and vibrant and intense. Um, and then it also adds flavor. Viognier, for anybody who's ever had a Viognier, is quite an aromatic grape variety. It often reminds me of peaches and coconuts, like sunscreen almost vibes. Um, it tends to have an oiliness, this real richness, um, often reminding me of ginseng and oolong tea. There's these beautiful floral qualities to it that are almost tropical in a way. Uh, it's a really delightful grape variety, but tends to be quite heavy on its own. Uh, and especially if it's not planted in the perfect site, it, it can tend to feel a little bit flabby. This is one of the reasons I like Viognier is because it is so full-bodied and it's a nice opportunity to uh, to get to drink a wine that's, you know, a little more weighty, a little more serious. Um, and so blended with Syrah that obviously has its own peppery qualities, you get this really interesting combination of, um, of sort of stone fruit influencing some of the more black and red fruit of uh, the Syrah. Uh, this wine was uh, fermented or at least the grapes are co-fermented for uh, six days before being pressed off into breeks, which are um, sort of a, you know, a smaller size barrel. Um, that barrel is going to allow a little bit of influence from oxygen over the time that it spends there, uh, which is about nine months before uh, Rajin racks and, and bottles this. It's only using about 25 parts per million of, of SO2. Uh, I assume that um, uh, Craig is using about you know, maybe a little bit less than that even. Uh, I wonder if I have notes on that. I do have notes on that. Yeah, only 12 parts per million for uh, for Testa Longa. So again, both these wines are incredibly low sulfur. For, you know, commercial red wines, you're looking 50 plus parts per million of sulfur. So this is significantly less than that. Um, I'm really interesting to, interested to see what you think of this comparison. I would say that the dark side is definitely a little bit more angular, a little bit more jagged, a little more um, kind of has more elbows to it versus uh, the yo, I think they're talking about you, Syrah uh, from Ursa Major is a little bit more soft, a little more playful, a little more jovial, um, has a little bit more weight to it um, in sort of a different way. Uh, so it'll be really interesting to see what everybody thinks about this comparison. Um, either way, these wines are both highly sought after, so I feel like it'll be a nice opportunity to get to drink something that uh, will be hard to get your hands on. Um, the Dark Side, only 24 bottles for all of Alberta. Um, Ursa Major's wine, 120 bottles, so a little bit more, but honestly, it vanishes so quickly, uh, it'll be hard to snag a second bottle. The last wine in this month's wine club, we obviously had to use a Rhone blend um, of white grape varieties. So this is Maloof's Wax On Wax Swaff, uh, one of the most hilarious names for a wine of all time um, and an absolute beauty. Uh, this is showing the, the more delicate side of Rhone grape varieties. They wanted to prove that you can make something that was low alcohol, crisp, fresh, a um, little bit on the savory side and, and I don't know, show off this sort of other personality that Rhone grape varieties can have. Uh, so this is a blend of uh, Grenache Blanc, um, Marsan, and Viognier, with Viognier making up about 40% of the blend, and Grenache Blanc and Marsan making up sort of equal parts of the, the remainder. Um, 
We've already talked about Viognier and its sort of flavor characteristics being quite aromatic, quite rich, quite decadent. Um, and so Grenache Blanc, for me, is quite neutral tasting. It's actually quite reminiscent of uh, Chardonnay, but maybe without the minerality that Chardonnay tends to have, less of the sort of flinty saline quality. Grenache Blanc is maybe a little bit more plush, a little bit more soft. And then Marsan is really interesting. It's always got a really kind of nutty quality to me, um, a savoriness to it, even though it is, you know, generally has a ton of stone fruit. Um, this particular rendition is also a little bit uh, reductive, so it tends to have a little bit more of a flinty quality than you'd normally expect. For me, I would definitely suggest decanting this wine. I think that it needs a little time to open up. Um, that's why we're using the 2020 in this wine club, even though the 2021 should be available any second now. I think that uh, showing this wine with a little bit more, not age necessarily, because it's not particularly old, but I just think in the 2020 vintage, it was a little tighter than the 2019 vintage or the 2021 vintage. So it needs a little more time to kind of come out of its shell. So yeah, I would definitely say decant this if you have uh, the opportunity to do that. Um, Maloof, as we've talked about before, is coming from Oregon. It's Ross and B, uh, the winemakers. They're absolutely lovely human beings. Um, Ross is just like quite a character, always joking around, uh, really brilliant, especially when it comes to, um, to all things pertaining to wine. Uh, and now farming as they started farming their own vineyard called No Clow Radio. Um, and then B is, you know, genius in her own right, uh, you know, working as, I believe, an aerospace engineer, designing like textiles for NASA or something ridiculous like that. Uh, either way, just like incredibly bright human beings that are uh, just so loving and, and just enthusiastic about what they do. Um, this particular uh, vineyard is uh, planted by uh, Herb Quaddy, who I've been calling Herb Quaddy. I apologize. I finally heard somebody from Oregon uh, pronounce his name, so hopefully I've gotten it right now. Uh, and he's down in the Applegate Valley, which is further south than the Willamette Valley. If you ever get a chance to visit Oregon, it's definitely worth taking the drive all the way down to the Applegate Valley. It's an entirely different region down here. Uh, you're at higher elevations, so in this case, 1,400 feet above sea level. Um, and the soils are quite a bit different as well, too. Uh, up here, we have a lot more granite. So it, kind of across the board, we have a lot of granite. Um, the uh, sandy loam that we, we had from Ursa Major Definitely a portion of that is, is granitic in origin. Um, and then obviously the uh, um, uh, Testolonga's wine is grown almost exclusively on granite. And this is what's interesting is that in the Northern Rhone, you have a lot of granite. You have granite and you have schist. Those are the main uh, soil types that you have in the Northern Rhone. And so we've really chosen wines that are using Rhone grape varieties that are planted on Rhone uh, soils that have similar climates to the Rhone, um, but that are, are not from the Rhone. So it'll be cool to see everybody's interpretation of this. And if you do end up falling in love with the Rhone Valley uh, via these wines, you know, we have plenty of uh, recommendations for producers you should be drinking from the Northern Rhone that are Unfortunately, not inexpensive uh, with regions as famous as this. Uh, it's hard to find value, but that being said, we are experts at this and we can we can most likely help you out. 
Um, from a winemaking perspective, uh, nothing super weird happening here. We've definitely included some interesting wines over the last couple months, so we wanted to go a little bit more classic from a winemaking perspective here. Um, this is direct pressed, uh, meaning that they're not destemming the grapes before they're extracting the juice. Um, this usually results in lighter juice, uh, which once fermented yields these really light, sort of tactile, very delicate wines. Um, that I really enjoy if you like precision. Um, and it's aged in barrel. Uh, these barrels are neutral, so they're, they're old barrels. They're not really going to have any flavor to them. Um, but, you know, it's it's just a vessel to allow micro amounts of oxygen to, to interact with the wine. Um, the wine is bottled with 30 parts per million of sulfur. So uh, again, we're, we're talking about micro amounts of sulfur and they only made 103 cases. Uh, 2020 was a really challenging vintage. So across the board, we got really tiny amounts from Maloof. Um, this year, they definitely upped their production a little bit. Um, and so if you fall in love with this wine, unfortunately, there's not gonna be a lot to go around, but there is going to be uh, quite a bit of the, not quite a bit, but a reasonable amount of the 2021 vintage once we move over to it. Um, as mentioned, this is sort of a more delicate version. So only 11.5% alcohol, no oak influence. Uh, it still has some of the textural components that I really love about the Northern Rhone crammed into this, you know, kind of lighter frame. Um, but it's uh, it's definitely a more refreshing uh, version. So hopefully that gives you a, a fairly good introduction to what you can expect out of uh, Northern Rhone wines and to a lesser extent about Southern Rhone wines. Um, this is going to be a really fun comparative tasting. I definitely think that if you have a group of people together, it would be great to open uh, the Testalonga and the Ursa Major side by side. Um, but even if you don't, just you know, keep the those flavors in the back of your mind and um, you know, allow yourself to make uh, some comparative assessments. Anyways, thank you so much for taking the time to listen. We're going to keep this one fairly short this month. I feel like we've had a lot of long podcasts lately. So uh, this is going to be the short and sweet and, and, you know, a lot of, uh, I guess, details crammed into, you know, a 25 minute period. So if anybody does have additional questions, though, or has suggestions for what we should talk about next month, uh, you can send me an email. My email address is eric, E-R-I-K, at juiceimports.com. Thank you so much for taking the time and we'll uh, chat with you next month. Cheers.